Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to another episode of Cerebral Faith Live. I'm Evan Minton, and today we are going to talk about Molinism. Uh, If you've been following Cerebral Faith Live for a while now, I've talked about Molinism before a couple of times, talked about it in my uh, PowerPoint presentation, or or really more like Canva. (laughs) It was uh, was a slide I created in Canva called The Abductive Case for Molinism. Uh, And if you've subscribed to the channel and kept up with videos that I've uploaded, I uploaded a couple videos on uh, on Molinism too, namely like, is Molinism deterministic and does Molinism... Uh, mean that God approves of everything in the world that he actualizes. Those aren't the actual titles, but those are the subjects of those videos. Uh, But up until this point, I never really talked about the soteriological aspect of Molinism. And today I have on the On Cerebral Faith Live and on the audio podcast for you guys listening on audio later on iTunes and Podbean and and so on, uh, I have Kenneth Keithley. He's written this book, Salvation and Sovereignty, A Molinist Approach, um, and it really revolutionized the way that I thought about um, the way that I thought about soteriology. I read it back in uh, 2015, so I've had this book for a while, and uh, I never really found Calvinism or Arminianism completely satisfying. I would say I was more on the Arminian side than the Calvinist side. I thought Calvinism was just full of holes, uh, but Arminianism, I thought, they had to explain away some things. Calvinism had to do way more explaining away, but the typical Arminian, like when it came to predestination texts and uh, eternal security texts, it was, it, it really, the exegesis seemed kind of strained in those areas. But when I read this book, it was like everything clicked. Uh, if you don't know who Ken Keithley is, Ken Keithley is Senior Professor of Theology and the, Jess- and the Jesley Henley Chair of Theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Sin- Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, where he has been teaching since 2006. He also directs the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture, a center that seeks to engage culture, present and defend the Christian faith, and explore its implications for all areas of life. 
He is the author of Salvation and Sovereignty, a Molinist Approach, which I just showcased. Um, he co-authored, he's the co-author of 40 Questions About Creation and Evolution, and he's the co-editor of Old Earth or Evolutionary Creation, discussing, discussing Origins with Reasons to Believe and Biologos. And I also have that book. It's a, it's a very good book. Old Earth and Evolutionary Creation is dialoguing with each other. Um, Ken and his wife, Penny, have been married since 1980. They live in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and are the member are members of North Wake Church in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Uh, Ken Keithley, it's good to have you on the podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you, Evan. So for those who may not have known, uh, those who you know may be totally new to this topic, may not have never read anything you wrote or anything that I put out, or any other, or never heard William Lane Craig or Tim Stratton talk about any of this. Uh, what is Molinism? Like, give the brief, you know, the brief rundown of what this theology is. Yeah, well, Molinism is, in a sentence, uh, the belief that God uh, is able to accomplish his will with precision and success, primarily by means of the use of his omniscience, and knowledge of what free creatures uh, would do in any particular scenario. Yeah, and um, how do, how does God accomplish? Uh, you, how does He use His knowledge to accomplish that? Yeah, well, uh, across the theological spectrum, there is general agreement uh, uh, in many ways about the nature of God's knowledge, at least in on two aspects. Um, just about uh, all Christians agree that God knows all true propositions. Uh, open theists would challenge that, but, uh, but for the most part, uh, throughout the history of the church, they would agree that God knows all, uh, all true propositions and, there's, and that God holds to no false beliefs. And so then the question is, what is the nature of that type of knowledge? And some of, of that which God knows, he knows uh, due to the very... Uh, due to his very nature. Uh, some things are true because uh, of who God is. So therefore, two plus two, uh, because God is a God of logic, because God is a God of truth, uh, two plus two equals four due to the very nature of God. Um, and so therefore, certain things like love, goodness, mercy, these things are goods, whereas um, hatred, strife, um, wickedness is always bad due to the very nature of God. And so God knows all these things due to his very nature. Um, then there are certain things that are true due to his will. In other words, he created this world, could have created a different world, but he created this world. And there are certain things that are true um, in, uh, in this world. And uh, this, we call that his free knowledge because, uh, because um, God knows everything true about this world uh, that he freely chose, that he freely actualized. I don't think there's a great deal of disagreement among Calvinists and Arminians about those two moments or aspects to God's knowledge, that they would believe that there are certain things that are true due to the very nature of God, which is then we call it God's natural knowledge. And then we'd say that there are certain things that God knows is true due to his will. And so this is his free knowledge. The question then comes up, what is the nature of God's knowledge concerning um, creaturely 
free choices made by genuinely free creatures. Um, not only what they would do in this or did do in this world, but what they would have done in any scenario. And so, what is the nature of that knowledge? Is it is it the uh, the product of God's uh, nature? No, uh, we're talking about uh, actions that uh, are libertarianly free, uh, that free creatures do. So they could have done otherwise, and so it's contingent. Um, is it uh, the product of his will? Well, most of them are not, because God doesn't actualize a world in which it happens at all. And so we'd say that's knowledge that God has that's somewhere in between um, his natural knowledge and his free knowledge. And so that's why it's called middle knowledge. And so uh, Molina, Luis uh, Molina, a, a 16th century Jesuit, um, presented a, a way of understanding the way God can control uh, and be in control by utilizing that middle knowledge in which he is able to, to be in perfect control without causing uh, the actions of libertarianly free creatures. Uh, and so that's what's called Molinism. Yeah. And I, I usually find I the example when I'm explaining it myself, the my favorite example is to use the circumstances leading up to Jesus's crucifixion, because Acts chapter two, uh, I can't remember the verse. I think it's 24, 23. but it's 23. OK, well, I was close. <laughs> says that You're doing fine. Yeah, he says uh, Peter says um, that Jesus was crucified according to the plan of and foreknowledge of God. And determinists often, you know, use that verse, but I don't think it has to prove determinism. And, you know, like God knew, you know, if Pontius Pilate were born in the time and place that he was in, he would freely choose, you know, to do what he did. Uh, he would freely choose to set Barabbas free and send Jesus to the cross. He knew that if uh, Caiaphas was high priest in the first century. At that very moment, uh, he would have freely chosen to not believe Jesus's claims about himself and condemn him on grounds of blasphemy. And the Jews would have freely chosen to take Chia to take Jesus off to the Romans to plead with them. Uh, and he knew that if Judas were to become a disciple of Jesus, he would freely choose to betray him uh, to the Sanhedrin. Uh, God knew all of these things in his middle knowledge, and so he was able to orchestrate the crucifixion of Jesus for the atonement of our sins, and yet all of their actions were free. And now some, sometimes people will ask, well, what if Pilate had done differently? Uh, what if Judas had done differently? And then I say, well, God could have put a different person in Pilate's or Judas's you know, shoes, so to speak or they, they wore sandals, they didn't wear shoes, uh, you know, so he would have known that, okay, Pilate wouldn't have done this, and so, you know, some other person would have been uh, in his shoes, and that's a, I think that's a really great illustration to get how, you know, the, the free will and the divine sovereignty uh, work by bringing up this, this biblical example. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very good example. Um, <clears throat> A, a, a classic example is in Exodus 32, where God and Moses come down from the mountain and they see that the people of Israel are worshiping the golden calf. And God says to Moses, um, stand back, Moses, don't pray for them. I'm going to kill them all. And I will start over 
with you and make a mighty nation out of you. Now, um, everything that he said, uh, here's the question that we would have. Um, did God know that Moses was going to go ahead and disobey him, so to speak, and go ahead and intercede and pray for them? And the answer is, I believe, uh, like I said, open theists would disagree with me, uh, that they would say, uh, you know, uh, I would say, yes, he knew it. Um, was, was everything that he said to Moses true? And the answer is yes. If Moses had not prayed, then God would have killed them. Uh, all the people of Israel, and he would have started over with Moses, just like he said. So it seems to me that it's very important uh, to, to affirm uh, that God has perfect knowledge of, of all counterfactuals, and that counterfactuals have truth value, even in this actual world, even if they don't come to uh, pass, um, they still have what we'd say, have uh, they have truth content. Uh, if we don't, then we either have God lying to, to Moses or God not realizing that Moses was going to disobey. And both of those are theologically problematic. Yeah. And I also I also love using the example of Jonah just because Jonah is an interesting story anyway, and I love being able to, to talk about it. But like God knew uh, if he told Jonah to preach to Nineveh, he would freely choose to flee to Tarshish. And if Jonah chose to flee to choose to tar uh, to flee to Tarshish, then uh, he would. Uh, well, he was God. God caused the storm, but God knew if I cause a storm, uh, then these pagans are going to pray to their gods and they're going to talk to Jonah, and Jonah would, you know, say, "Throw me overboard," and they would freely do that, and then a fish would swallow him jonah would freely choose to change his mind to and about repenting to them he would re, he would uh he, he would go preach to them and and if jonah preaches to nineveh the nineveh would freely choose to uh to repent yeah <laughs> and so and that, god and god said god said all of that and he didn't really he didn't really do much except tell nona to tell Gen Cannot talk today for some reason. Tell Jonah to preach to Nineveh, and he caused the storm. He may have caused the fish too, but he m most of it was just his knowledge of how these people would act in these in these circumstances. Yeah, well, the text says that 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 God had prepared the fish, and so so it was all. Um, here, here's the thing: uh, is it possible for God to be? Uh, as successful in accomplishing his will as much as a Calvinist wants to affirm. And we'd say, yes, I, I really do think that the Calvinist is right, that God is sovereign and he's able to accomplish his will with precision and success. Are humans um, genuinely uh, bequeath the ability to choose? And are our choices truly contingent? Could they have been otherwise? just like an Arminian would want to affirm. And I would say, yes, the Arminian is true, uh, is, is correct about that. And so um, we have this tension uh, that is presented to us in scripture. Um, the Calvinists are able to make a very strong argument because there's so many passages of scripture that seem to support their case. 
Arminians are also able to make a very robust argument because there's so many passages that seem to defend, uh, present them to. Um, Molinism is uh, the view that attempts to say both are correct and here is how. Uh, and, and so that, that is, Molinism truly is a mediating position. Yeah. And that's what, that's what ultimately convinced me was that it, it had, it seemed, it had explanatory scope. Like when I was an Arminian, like I saw so many problems with Calvinists. I just, I held the Arminianism cause that was just, I didn't see any other, you know, position. It had the fewest problems, but it did have problems. And when I would come across passages where God is really hands-on and really in control, that would make me uncomfortable. Uh, I'm like, and I would read like Arminian and open theist attempts to, to try to get around these. And it just seemed like they were just trying to explain away the text. Yeah. I, I don't, I, 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 I do think that uh, in these kind of conversations that a certain level of patience and grace is in order because we are all struggling with these great issues and we're wanting to do justice to all the biblical texts. Um, and so um, I find that the best Calvinist and, and the best Arminians end up wanting to sound an awful lot like Molinists because they, they do recognize that, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, humans uh, are, genuinely are agents. We are causal agents. We are, we are the originators of, of our choices and decisions. So uh, how do we hold these two truths, uh, these two biblical truths? Uh, the sovereign God created us in his image. Uh, and so how do we hold these two things? There are other, complica uh, other complicating factors, uh, particularly in the area of soteriology. Um, what I found was uh, through, through the years, whenever we would talk about Molinism and explain what it is intended to accomplish, and let's remember what it was that Molina was attempting to do. He was wanting to, to show how it's possible that um, the, the God of the Bible, who is as sovereign and as in control as the Bible presents him, um, how, in, in, in a, how could we understand that view of providence and still believe that our choices are real and that we could have done otherwise? So it was primarily dealing with a doctrine of providence and God's omniscience. So whenever I would explain that to people, they would say, that's great. Now, how does that work in the area of salvation? Uh, who has, what Molinus has written a book on soteriology? And I'd had to say, well, as far as I know, no one. And then I realized, well, that, that's, that's a book that needs to be written. And so that's, that's why I wrote uh, Salvation and Sovereignty. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it, it, I'm glad I'm glad you did. Um, now that now that we've kind of laid the groundwork of what Molinism is for the for the newbies, uh, let's let's get into how it does apply to uh, mm -hmm. salvation. And uh, it has been a while since I read your book, but uh, I I remember you saying explicitly uh, that it was a sort of middle in the road approach, sort of incorporating the insights that Calvinism and Arminianism have, and so. Uh, perhaps you can summarize, you know, one, what what do the Calvinists get right and what do the Arminians get right insofar as soteriology uh, 
and how to you know sort of broadly how does Molinism help those pieces fit? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great question, and uh, full disclosure here, uh, just like there are there's a spectrum within Calvinism and there's a spectrum within Ar Arminianism. We need to admit there's a spectrum within Molinism. Uh, and so there are Molinists who lean more to the Arminian side, and there are Molinists who lean a little more uh, to the Calvinist side. Uh, as you said, Evan, uh, you came to Molinism from 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 the Arminian side of of the of the conversation. Um, I came uh, to Molinism by way of the the Calvinist side, and so uh, probably I think I I think that um, when I've ha I've been described as uh, as a Molinist with Calvinist leanings. And that's probably uh, I'll go ahead and uh, and and own that um, because uh, because I think Bill Craig uh, he would interpret a few things a little differently than I would, and that that's fine. Um, <clears throat> what I would argue is is that the Calvinists are right when they say that salvation is uh, all by grace from beginning to end. It's a work of God from beginning to end, and it's all to his glory. They are 100% right. And I think that um, all of us as good Christians, regardless of, 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 of what is your denominational affiliation, I mean, even our Roman Catholic brethren and our Greek Orthodox brethren would, would want to affirm those things that Calvinists emphasize. And that is uh, salvation is by grace, uh, it is uh, a, it is the work of God on our behalf. God is the one who saves us. He saves us because we can't save ourselves. And therefore, all glory belongs to him. And so we want to say amen uh, on those themes. Uh, at the very same time, uh, our Arminians uh, make a very, our Arminian brethren make a very good case. And they are very right to remind us that God has a genuine love for all humanity. There's no person that he's ever created, uh, no human being that he's ever created that he did not desire to have an eternal relationship with them. Uh, and so he has a salvific desire for all humanity. Uh, every one of us uh, really do have to choose and the choose the choice really is in front of us and the possibility of failing in that choice is very real um, so so we would say that the call of God is monergistic but I'm going to argue that it's resistible that our Armenian brethren is are right whenever they warn each and every person who hears the preaching of the gospel that um, the choice really is before them. Um, the responsibility is theirs because they had the ability to respond. And therefore, the failure to respond is a moral failure, and they're culpable for saying no to Jesus. And so uh, those Calvinistic emphases and those Arminian emphases, I think there's overwhelming biblical warrant for both sets of truths. Yeah, and let's go. Let's go through uh, each acronym of the roses. R O S E S. Uh, first, the the R. What is radical depravity, and what's the biblical evidence for it? 
Yeah. Well, first, I, I need to acknowledge that I am not the originator of the ROSES acronym, Timothy George, who um, uh, just a, a, a great uh, dear uh, a Christian brother who who taught for many years at Southern Seminary uh, and then ran Beeson Divinity School. I think he's now retired. Uh, he's the one who originated the acronym of ROSES. And I asked him if I could if I could borrow it. And he was gracious enough to say yes. So let's I give that credit. Radical depravity uh, is acknowledging that um, the effects of Adam's sin is pervasive, that it's had uh, that that we genuinely uh, are unable to save ourselves and uh, left in our natural state. Our inclination is to run from God and to be at enmity with him. So um, the the. Uh, so, so the radical depravity, that's what we would want to say, that, it's, that it is pervasive. Um, total depravity is trying to say the, almost exactly the same thing. Uh, unfortunately, the word total kind of gives the idea that there is no relative uh, goodness that a lost person can do. And we simply know um, there's, there's no biblical warrant for thinking that. Uh, and there is an inhuman experience would tell us that we know uh, lots and lots of unsaved people who uh, pay their taxes, uh, they love their wives, uh, they're good to their children. And so there is a relative goodness. In fact, this perhaps may be the, the greatest impediment to receiving the gospel there is, that they have this relative goodness where they feel like they're pretty good people. So total depravity. Um, has, you know, again, whenever you read someone who's, who explains it very carefully, uh, they don't say it in those ways. Uh, but many times um, in, in, in it's presented in a very reckless way that uh, total depravity has the idea that we're always as bad as we possibly can be. Now, what it's saying is, is that there's no part to us that has not been affected by the fall. So that even the relative good that I do turns out to be tainted by sin, and even it falls short of the glory of God. So not only must I repent of my sins, I have to repent of my own self-righteousness. So that's what radical depravity means. Yeah. And what what's like some of the biblical evidence uh, for that? Can well, you like cite some passages? Well, I mean, the heart's deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our Psalm 19, who can understand his, 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 his faults? Um, there's just so many passages of scripture that says, for there's none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned. I mean, it's the classic Roman road uh, uh, verses all say that we are sinful. Uh, and then uh, you have other passages, such as in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, that the natural man does not receive the things uh, of the Spirit of God. Uh, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Yeah. Yeah. And our uh, our in, inability to come to God is like addressed in John six forty four, where Jesus says, uh, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Yeah, we are not Pelagians. Uh, yeah. Even even uh, good Arminians are. I mean, you know, Arminians are not uh, Pelagians. Uh, that's why they have the doctrine of provenient grace, because we all realize that that in our natural state, uh, 
we will not uh, seek God, nor will we want God. There has to be, God has to be the one who comes looking for us. Yeah, and that that leads to the next letter in the acronym, which is uh, Overcoming Grace. Uh, yeah. What is Overcoming Grace, and um, what is some of the biblical evidence for that? Yeah, well, th it's very clear that if anyone does believe, it has been because God, had, God uh, the Holy Spirit, has pursued us and is at work in our hearts, uh, in our minds, uh, speaking to us that whenever we hear the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit of God is confirming and, and, and affirming, yes, this is the truth, this is what you need. So there has to be that drawing and wooing of the Spirit of God. Here again, that's not John Calvin, that's John Wesley. Uh, I don't know any Orthodox Christian that doesn't believe that anyone who comes to Christ did so because the Spirit of God uh, drew. The question is, um, whether or not that that work can be resisted. Um, I think that all of us would say, uh, like I said, Calvinist, Arminians, Molinists, God's grace overcame my obstinance. It, it, uh, his, his drawing overcame my resistance. And um, occasionally I meet somebody who says, the very first time they heard the gospel, they said yes. Those are rare individuals. Um, now, if you're someone like me, uh, who grew up in in uh, in church, there were uh, there was a number of years that I fought uh, the drawing and the call of God uh, with almost every fiber of my being. I was one of those guys who, you know, the white knuckle guys uh, at the end of church, where my knuckles would be white with me resisting. Uh, the, I would hear the preaching, I would come under terrible conviction, and I was thinking, man, if I can just get out of here. Um, and I would say, and this is, this is what I would contend, if I had left, left church and died in a car wreck on the way home, um, I would have spent eternity without God. Um, even though there was a work of grace going on, a drawing, um, I had up to that point, uh, successfully resisted God's grace. Yeah, and uh, I, I remember like reading. You talked about that in your book uh, too, about how you resisted for many years. And as I was reading that, I recalled some moments of my own. Uh, I grew up in church, also, and uh, I was, you know, what you might call a nominal Christian or a Christian atheist or. Uh, false convert or whatever, whatever you want, whatever label you want. Maybe, you know, yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of yeah, things that have happened there. Basically. I mean, I, basically I affirmed the creeds, but I didn't do any, didn't do anything about it. I just sort of nodded my head in agreement with, you know, yeah, God exists. Yeah. Jesus died. Yeah. Jesus rose from the dead. But I lived, uh, like, you know, like those who use the term Christian atheists, uh, I believed God exists, but I lived as though he didn't. Um, and, and I would only pray like when things got really, really bad and when I really needed something. Mm -hmm. And I remember before I actually got saved for real, before I went from belief that to belief in, uh, there were times where uh, I, in retrospect, God was calling me and I, and I didn't come. Um, fortunately, he, he, 
he got to me eventually, but um, yeah, I can just, I, I can just remember, you know, several instances at, at which I thought, you know what, I'm not, I'm not really saved. I'm, I'm, I need, I need to get saved. I, I should, I should read my Bible more. I should, I should not just pray to God when, you know, God's not my own personal genie. Um, and I would have those moments of conviction. And so I, I, in retrospect, yeah, there were times where I uh, resisted before yeah, and, I actually got saved. Yeah, and think of the biblical warrant for understanding God's call to work this way. Think of all of the times that God in the Old Testament called Israel. Those calls were genuine. Those calls were real. Um, this is for, for, those, for the Calvinist idea that there is an inward call that is given only to the elect. They have the difficulty and the problem of the well-meant offer. Um, how is it that, um, you know, is the offer and the call genuine, uh, the external call? And, and, and it turns the preaching of the gospel to everyone who hears into almost kabuki theater. Uh, if, if there's only a secret call going on on the inside, um, one has to wonder just what in the world Jesus meant when he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft I would have drawn you as a hen would call, uh, draw her chicks. Uh, but you would not. Uh, and it makes it very clear that there is this genuine desire on the part of Jesus Christ and a genuine call. Uh, same thing when Stephen uh, is preaching there uh, in Acts chapter um, 7, where he gives his sermon, and at the end of it, he says to the Jews uh, that he calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised his heart. Uh, As your fathers resist, resisted the Holy Spirit, so do you. Uh, and so there is this resisting that's going on that's very, very real. Uh, you do find passages, and this is, these are the passages that our Calvinist brethren point to, where it talks about God closing their ears and closing their eyes to where they can, they, you know, uh, hearing, you know, seeing they see not, hearing they hear not. Um, and so uh, there, there is very clear evidence uh, of God uh, shutting off um, the, the hearing and seeing for certain ones. If you'll notice, though, in every one of those examples that you find, these, this is an act of judgment upon those who have rejected prior offers of grace. Uh, the most explicit of this is in 2 Thessalonians, and it's one of the most terrifying passages I know of in the Bible where it says, for this cause, God will send them strong delusions uh, that they may believe a lie and that they may be damned. You know, wow, that's terrifying. Why? It says, because they would not receive the truth. Uh, and so it makes it very clear that the reason why they're receiving this type of punishment, and it is a punishment, it's a judgment, is because they rejected prior offers of grace that were that was really genuinely there. Yeah, uh, and also I, I've never really found those texts compelling because 
it kind of presupposes that they were able to respond prior to God acting, which kind yeah. of negates the whole, you know, we're, we, we would just, it, it kind of negates the whole idea that we would just run away on our own and God has to do something to, to bring us in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's, you're, you're making a very good point because um, why warn about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Uh, if there was not a prior work of the Holy Spirit that you were in danger of forfeiting. Um, you know, it doesn't make any sense uh, to for Jesus to talk to them the way that he does. And this goes back to John chapter six, um, where Jesus warns uh, his hearers, uh, you know, that about about um, you are not of my sheep. Um, and so, you know, that there's a, there's there's a, a lot of my Calvinist brethren will say, see, uh, you know, they were non elect. <clears throat> so the call wasn't to them. Now say now think about this just for a second. Let's take a look at the context and let's think about the audience, the ones to whom he is speaking. He is talking to people who believe they are the chosen people. They think they are elect. Um, uh, if if uh, if you were to ask them, they were quite convinced that they were in within the covenant of God. And that it's everybody else that's out of luck. They are the people and, and they are the elect. Um, if, so what is Jesus doing in John chapter 6? Is he, is he telling them that they're out of luck? Is he telling them, is he, is he taunting them that there is no grace available? There's no salvation for them. There's no election for them. Or is it more likely what the text seems to be indicating? that he's warning them against their false assurance and their false confidence, where they're saying, we have Abraham as our father. You know, they, they are quite convinced uh, that they are within the covenant of salvation. Uh, and God and Jesus is warning them, uh, you think you're saved, but you actually are not. Otherwise, all he's doing is taunting them that there's no salvation available which seems very bizarre. Part of your uh, part of your chapter on overcoming election, you talk about how overcoming grace. Yeah, overcome overcoming a grace. Yeah, yeah overcoming grace. Uh, you talk about how grace is monergistic but it's resistible and you you call it the ambulatory model. Could you get into that for our audience? Well, what is it what part there do you uh, okay, uh, here's the question then. Um, how can it be that uh, it is all of God, uh, and and yet I have to be brought to a point where I choose? So let's think of that moment that you you choose, uh, that moment in which you um, you you place your faith. In other words, uh, a lot of times uh, whenever I hear critiques of my ambulatory model, uh, they they seem to think that the ambulance and the ride in the ambulance is is somehow uh, the right of faith. No, that's not what I'm talking about. And that the hospital is heaven or salvation. No, no, the, the hospital in this analogy is coming to that point of, of decision. And so, uh, again, um, this the ambulatory model is, is not original with me. I read an article by Richard Cross in which he was going through the various ways of trying to understand 
how it can be all of grace, <clears throat> uh, and yet we choose. And this was uh, an illustration he used, so I have to give him credit for that. But imagine this. Um, you wake up in an ambulance, and you are in need uh, of, of care. The ambulance is taking you to the hospital. If you do nothing, um, the, you will arrive at the hospital. Uh, now, you, if you arrive, you will get none of the credit. Uh, the ambulance will get all of the credit. Now, let's say for whatever bizarre reason, you, re you say, no, stop, I want out. The ambulance driver may uh, warn you, he may uh, express regret, but he will honor your wishes and let you out. <clears throat> now, in this model, um, there's nothing you can do in it, and I use do with you know air quotes around it, except resist. The only thing you can do is damn yourself. Um, uh, you know, if you arrive to the point of placing faith, that was a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you if you um, do not come to faith, it's your fault. This is the way the Bible presents things all the way through. You think about it. Who gets the credit for your salvation? God does. Who gets the blame for unbelief? Humans do. And so this is a model that tries to, to do justice to those twin truths. Um, every, um, if you think about it, and, and this is something that both Calvinists and Arminians, I think, uh, understand this intuitively, especially in their walk with the Lord uh, in after salvation. For example, Evan, um, <clears throat> you and I are both Christians. We're both believers. We're both following the Lord. Um, we believe that that the salvation that we initially experienced is continuing, ongoing in our sanctification. And that our sanctification is by grace just as much as our justification. So everything that Evan Minton does right to the glory of God, that's God's grace at work. How about every time Evan Minton falls short? Is it because God withheld grace or was the opportunity really there for you? Yeah. It's, uh, it reminds me of, uh, of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where Paul says, uh, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can endure, but with the temptation, he will allow the... He will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. You know, if you if you fall into temptation, uh, it's your fault. You could have done otherwise. The way of escape was there. God provided it and you just didn't take it. Yeah. And this is what one of the things that uh, makes uh, determinists very uncomfortable is their doctrine of sanctification. Some just go ahead and become inconsistent. Somebody like R.C. Sproul, uh, Sproul would say, well, I was a monergist for conversion, but I'm a synergist when it comes to sanctification. So they just decide that God's grace somehow works synergistically after all. Who knew that? Um, and, and then, um, however, there's a number of Calvinist and not, they they will remain. Uh, I will not say who they are because I I, I don't want to, I don't want to get into a fight over that. 
But they go ahead and say, no, sanctification is monergistic just as much as, as, as uh, justification is. So therefore, going against what you just quoted in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, they would say that every sin committed by the Christian was uh, God withholding sufficient grace for that Christian to obey. And that somehow in his inscrutable will, God actually desired the sin of the Christian. And pastorally, they realized that this is a disastrous teaching. If you teach your congregation that every sin you committed is, you didn't have, God's grace wasn't available for you to overcome that anyway. Oh my goodness. Um, I, I, this is you, not something- You can always, you can always put the blame on God. Well, instead of instead of the devil made me do it, it was God made me do it, or or well, God didn't, or God didn't help me not do it. Right. Well, and 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 well, God withheld the the grace that would that would have made the difference. Now, um, of course, they don't want to say that in sanctification, um, but they don't have a problem at all in saying that uh, in in the preaching of the gospel. I preached uh, yesterday uh, to a congregation, and I preached Christ to the best of my ability. And I was preaching there uh, that each and every one of them must say yes to Jesus or they will perish. And I said it to, to them with, with every ounce of my being and hopefully in the power of the Holy Spirit, I, I wanted to get across to them that God loved each and every one of them, that Christ died for each and every one of them. The Spirit of God is dealing with each and every one of them, that redemption really is available to every hearer uh, that to whom I was preaching. Um, I believe that with all my heart and mind. I really do believe that. And <clears throat> my Calvinist brethren can't say that. And <laughs> for that reason, I'm not a Calvinist. Yeah. So let's move on to uh, the sovereign elect. I think the I think the first S is sovereign. There's two S's in the acronym. Uh, I think first the first S. Election. Okay. The, the first S is sovereign election. Could you uh, explain that for yeah. our audience? Yeah. What I realized, and this is per perhaps the point that led me to Molinism more than anything else, is that uh, the the debate that happened among Calvinists between the superlapsarians and the infolapsarians. In the, the superlapsarians uh, argued that God damned the reprobate in the very same way that he, he that he chose uh, the elect and saved the elect. So therefore, it is symmetric that God eternally loved the elect and He eternally hated uh, the reprobate. Um, now. Most Calvinists get really queasy about that because if God eternally hated uh, the reprobate, uh, think about this. Why? Why did he hate them? Don't know. In fact, it is not because they're sinners. He ordained they became sinners so that he could justly send them to hell. So he hated them first, uh, ordained that they become sinners so that he could be just in punishing them. And so now uh, God has, and, and, and what you find yourself having to say is in the superlapsarian system, uh, this, you know, yes, we know God is love, 
But in the superlapsarian system, God is also hate. Uh, and because he, you know, it's an eternal attribute of God uh, in, in superlapsarianism. For that reason, um, most Calvinists pull away from that and try to argue for what's known as infralapsarianism. And that is that God ordained to create the world to, uh, uh, to and here's their language, permit the fall. In other words, they're, they're, they're going to say that God is going to allow the fall to happen. Now, notice they have started using the language of permission and contingency. Um, in other words, rather than God causing, God is permitting. And so now they have stepped away from hard determinism. Uh, they've stepped away from deterministic language. Uh, and then also what they're going to do then is they're going to say that now humanity as a whole is lost uh, due to um, the fall. And then all of humanity is running away from God. God then uh, reaches down and chooses certain ones. That's active election. The rest, he allows them to go their own way. And therefore, they are damned justly. Now, notice in this scheme how much uh, the notion of permission and contingency is involved. And then also notice that in this sense, um, God looks upon the reprobate because they are sinners. He judges them. He, he is against them uh, because they are sinners. Now, think about this. In order for him to do that, eternally elect sinful uh, uh, ones that he loves and to, to overlook and, and allow other sinful ones to go their way, now we have historical events um, figuring in to the eternal decrees of God. So now that which happens in history, God, according to his foreknowledge, is looking ahead and is making eternal decisions. I mean, in the infralapsarian system, uh, there's, there is, um, uh, as the superlapsarians are often happy to point out the infralapsarians, there's more than just a little bit of Arminianism uh, snuck in there through the side door. Um, and so you have, uh, in the infralapsarian system, uh, you have uh, the notion of permission, the notion of contingency, and the notion of history affecting the eternal decrees. Um, well, what, what type of knowledge does God use in order to accomplish that? And the moment you ask that question, you are on your way to becoming a Molinist. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that's why I argued that uh, a Molinist is simply a consistent infolapsarian. Uh, because what is going on here is that we are saying that God is able, that it, it, it doesn't take anything away from God's sovereignty to say uh, that there very much is, uh, the contingency is, is, a, is a valid concept, permission is a valid concept, and the historical um, informing the eternal are all valid concepts. Now, one thing that I critique both superlapsarian and infolapsarian is, is that they start with the individual. Um, and I think that in the end, 
this is inadvertently, but still very much so, very uh, anthropocentric, that it's still all about me and it's all about you. And the Bible presents uh, election as all about Christ. Now, it does impact us. It says he chose us in him. And so we need to always have Christ as the apex of our understanding of God's eternal decisions. And so I would argue, as Molina did, that God ordained a world that would bring maximal glory to Jesus Christ. And so that is how we should understand what's going on. Let's move on to the E in the ROSES acronym. Uh, can you explain the E for our audience? I'm trying to remember what, remind me again what E is. I'm, eternal, I'm, I'm, eternal life. Yeah, yeah. Here I am arguing for uh, that, and this goes, this goes back to the whole question of security, uh, preservation, and perseverance. Um, in, in what I'm arguing there, here, here's what we have. And I, I, I remember seeing what you so, sent to me about that there's, you have certain friends that, uh, that this is their bone of contention about uh, me having the confidence uh, I hold to the perseverance of the saints and that I really do believe that the saved really do make it to heaven. Um, there, again, the reason why um, there is such debate about this is because there's a great set of proof texts for both sides. If you look at the passages that uh, give us either um, promises or assurance, uh, you have those passages that tell us that um, uh, we really do experience eternal life as a present reality. Um, when I die, that's not whenever I'm going to enjoy eternal life. You and I are enjoying eternal life uh, right now. We are in proper relationship to God, and, and we have this new life is uh, eternal, uh, and they shall never perish. So there, it, uh, eternal life is a present reality. Second, uh, we are assured that we who are saved will remain saved, um, and you have the, a set of proof texts. Third, uh, those of us who are saved can know we're saved. It's something, it's, it's a type of certainty that I can have and you can have. We don't have to wonder, are we Christians? Are we saved? We can know that. And the fourth uh, kind of texts that give us assurance are those passages that point out that less than stellar Christians are still saved. They may receive the chastening of God. They may receive severe punishment or, or ch uh, 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 chasing to the point where God calls them home. Um, but uh, the Bible makes it very clear that um, some of the less than stellar, and you say, can you give me an example? I'm thinking of Lot. Um, he was not exactly what you'd call a great hero of the faith. And yet, uh, not once, but twice in the New Testament, he is described as a just or a righteous man, which is rather surprising when you think about it. And David. <laughs> yeah, and David or Samson. Yeah, we could go down the line. Then on the other side of the aisle, there are passages that either uh, warn or else they require perseverance. And so we need to acknowledge that they're there also. There are passages that say 
that there are people who think they're saved, but they actually are not. That's some of the more terrifying uh, passages. You know, many shall say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, uh, you know, uh, and and the, the, it turns out that they they were not in at all what they what they thought they were. Uh, second, there are passages that talk about certain ones that fall away. I mean, the parable of the sower is in the Bible. Um, I mean, you have the parable of of the of the ten virgins, which is very clear. The the five virgins were not prepared. They thought they were ready, but they weren't. Uh, in the parable of the sower, you have those who, uh, for one reason or another, the, 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 the seed sprouts for a while, then goes away. Um, then you have passages that uh, seem to teach that perseverance is a necessary or an essential component to the Christian life. He that endures to the end shall be saved. And then you have the fourth passage uh, type of uh, passage, which is the, the warning passages. What happens to you if you don't persevere? Uh, I'm thinking now of the warning passages in Hebrew. Uh, th those are those are tough. Those are those are really uh, quite severe. So you have two sets of of texts, and some of the best minds and some of the best Christians uh, have struggled with this two sets of passages. So um, what do we do? And Evan, what I would say is going on here where, where people land on this is that there are theological paradigms at work. In other words, what one believes about the nature of the atonement will go a long way towards determining how you're going to uh, land on uh, whether or not one is uh, secure or not. In other words, um, if you'll notice, those who tend to hold to penal substitution, they tend more often than not to be someone who would hold to some type of perseverance or security uh, of the believer. Those who hold to more governmental understandings of the atonement, in which they understand the atonement to be something similar to a general amnesty, um, they, by and large, will argue that uh, loss of salvation is something truly possible. So it is the nature of the atonement and the nature of justification that speak into our interpretation of those passages of scripture. And so you got to realize that's what's going on here. Uh, I really do believe, uh, I, am, I affirm penal substitution, that Christ died for me and he paid for my sins, and that when he died uh, on the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. So uh, that informs my understanding of, of security a great deal. Also, I understand justification to be a verdict, a forensic declaration of acquittal, uh, rather than a an infusion or a transformation. Uh, and, and I don't think that sanctification plays a part uh, in my justification. I agree with Calvin here that everyone whom the Lord justifies, he also sanctifies. But I understand those as two distinct realities. And so that's what's going on there. Okay, so we're gonna be we're uh, gonna be coming up on uh, Q and A very shortly. Um, again, I want to remind you to leave your question here in the live chat. Leave question in all caps and then a semicolon. Uh, I I say that because uh, in past live streams um, there have been people who actually you know talked to each other or argued with each other, and I picked some of the comments that that weren't talking to me at all <laughs> and so it's just it's just to it's uh, just to help 
separate the the wheat from the chaff. But um, Ken, could you? We're, we're coming on the final acronym, the second S, singular redemption. Yeah. What yeah, is that? I mean, and uh, if I, what's if I had if I had a label to change that would that'll be if I do another edition of the book, I will change that one because I I think sufficient. I, what I'm arguing is is that um, the the atonement is sufficient for everyone in the whole world. I'm arguing for against limited atonement there. Um, for those of us who hold to penal substitution, uh, there are many in my camp who thinks that if you're going to hold to penal substitution, you must also hold to limited atonement. And I would argue no, that 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 is not necessary. And in fact, there is. A compelling biblical evidence the, uh, uh, to the contrary, that um, I get why theologically people will logically argue for limited atonement. Uh, it's just that there is um, there is just a, a remarkable set of passages of scripture that teach otherwise, and not only just uh, proof texts, but the very notion and nature of the Old Testament teaching on atonement that makes it very clear that an atonement can be provided, but unless it is applied, uh, it is for naught. Yeah. So um, let's move on and look at some of the uh, some of the live chat questions. Um, hi, SlamRN. Uh, Slam RN, uh, he, she did have a question. Uh, she said, what is superlapsarian? But she said, okay, I looked it up. It's the doctrine that God decreed both election and reprobation prior to the fall and then allowed the fall of man as a means of carrying out his divine purposes. Yeah, think of double double predestination. Yeah, the, the superlapsarian is known for double predestination, that God uh, ordained the damnation of the reprobate uh, just as in the very same way he ordained the election of uh, the salvation of his elect. And so it's a, they understand uh, uh, election and reprobation as mirror images of each other. Yeah. And she also points out uh, infralapsarian. She summarizes it, the doctrine that God foresaw and permitted the fall of man. And after that, the fall uh, after the fall, he then decreed election as a means of saving some of the human race. Yeah, notice the language there, foresaw, God used foreknowledge, uh, and he permitted. Uh, and so this is why superlapsarians uh, denounce infolapsarians as being closet Arminians. By the way, the Synod of Dort teaches infolapsarianism, not superlapsarianism. Slamarian also asks, is Ken a universalist? No, um, I wish everybody was going to heaven. And if I get to heaven, finds out that there's more there than I thought was going to be there. That would be wonderful. But Jesus himself teaches that there are uh, not just wheat, there's also tares. There's not just sheep, there's also goats. There's not just those on the right hand, there's those on the left hand. And so Jesus himself is the one who lets us know that not everyone is going to heaven. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a universalist either, by the way. Um, I do get... Salvation <laughs> is universally available. Yes, it's universally available. Uh, yeah. God wants all to be saved. Jesus died for all. Grace is given to all. But 
that's that's where our agreement with the universalists stops. Right. right. So tonight seems to be a slow night, which is disappointing because last uh, Saturday uh, I had a debate and we we the live chat was really really going. Uh, it was a debate between uh, Caleb Jackson and James Fedor on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, uh, but sometimes sometimes it's a slow night. Sometimes it's and sometimes the place is hopping. Uh, <laughs> oh, we have a we have a question from Ken Wolgamoth. Uh, Wol Wol Wolgamoth. I made yeah, him sound like I made him yeah. sound like a Harry Potter character. <laughs> Ken's a great guy. Ken is a geologist out uh, in Oklahoma, and, and he's a fine fellow. Yeah, we're uh, we're Facebook friends. Uh, he says, hello, Ken K. Great to listen to this interview. Uh, see you next week. Uh, what is the first F? Sovereign? Sovereign I guess, election. I guess, he came, I guess he came in late. Yeah, yeah. The first S is sovereign election. In other words, I am going to argue that uh, God has a plan, and the plan is being worked, and it's going to be accomplished with precision and success. Uh, but the fact, what, what I would, um, so I want to say as clearly as my Calvinist brethren, yes, God has, uh, election is true. Against my Calvinist brethren and affirming like my, our, uh, like my Arminian brethren that the, the necessity of genuine repentance and faith uh, must be exercised and it's contingently true that you could have done otherwise. Uh, and, and if you had done otherwise, you, you would have been lost. If you'd said no to Jesus, you would have been separated from him forever. That those sentences are, have real truth content because they are contingently true. Contingency is, is, a, is a very real state of affairs or a very real aspect to the world in which we live. All right. So if anyone has any more questions, uh, go ahead and type them up quickly because I'm going to move on to the last few questions. And that will be the end of this stream. I don't think anybody has any more. Okay. Let's wrap this up then. All right. So D David David Paulman is a friend of mine. He's got a YouTube channel called Faith Because of Reason. He puts some really great stuff out on soteriology and epistemology. And currently uh, he's, um, I think he's just opened up a study of on uh, miracles. So he should be putting out some content uh, soon on that. He's a really, really, really avid reader. I don't know how he reads all the books that he does, but uh, he, he's a classical Arminian, and he's not a fan of the Roses. Uh, and I've, di I've, I've dialogued with him on several occasions about whether a Molinist brand of soteriology is valid. I told him, uh, I told him I was having you on the podcast, and uh, I asked him over Facebook Messenger to send me. I mean, I knew what they were, but I wanted him to type them out so that I, you know, wasn't just going off of memory because that mm -hmm. kind of has the potential to straw man. I kind of wanted to have his exact words there. Uh, so I asked him to send me some um, and I've got I've got what he said pulled up um, and we're going to we'll go through. He's He's got like three objections here. We'll go through them one by one. Uh, the first is uh, he writes. 
My two biggest issues uh, regard his ambulatory model of grace and his view of perseverance. The ambulatory model of grace effectively turns prevenient grace and saving grace into a single type of grace. When When God draws someone, they will be saved unless they resist. But this doesn't do justice to the importance of faith. Where, in his model, does one believe before being saved? In the Arminian view, there are three distinct moments leading to salvation, provenient grace, faith, and saving grace. Uh, Keith Lee's blurring of the distinctions makes one wonder what role faith is supposed to play in salvation. The Arminian model can, moreover, avoid the Calvinist charge that God can fail if free will is allowed to play any role in salvation. Provenient grace is always successful in enabling faith, and saving grace is always successful in saving those who believe. There is never any possibility of God failing to accomplish what he intends to do. But if we accepted Keithley's model, then God can fail since those he draws to salvation can resist and end up not being saved. The distinction between provenient grace and saving grace is therefore necessary in order to avoid the conclusion that God can fail. Yeah, I, I'll have to, as I'm listening to that, um, I'm not sure exactly what he understands about the ambulatory model and the role of faith. Again, I understand, it, and again, first off, it's just a model. Let's, let's keep that in mind. It is an illustration. But in, in the model, the hospital is the point in which a person comes to exercising faith. What we're talking about is the work of the Spirit of God in the human will. Now, um, I don't conflate uh, the the preaching, the, the the work of the Spirit during preaching and prevenient grace, because I'm not even dealing with prevenient grace at this point. I'm dealing with the work of the of the Spirit during preaching, and I do believe that there is a work of Word and Spirit that happens every time. The gospel is preached, or taught, or presented. If I didn't believe that, I'd be terrified uh, to try to do uh, a work uh, or try to witness to someone. So that would be the, the thing, the way that I would answer that if I'm understanding his objection uh, correctly. Uh, maybe it would be one of those things where I would just need to sit down with him and hear what he has to say. Um, as to the notion that we're afraid about God failing. Uh, not so much. I think. I think. I don't think God is really concerned about that, um, as nearly as much as David seems to be. Um, how many? How many of the original generation that uh, crossed through the Red Sea uh, with Moses got to enter into the Promised Land? Only two. Uh, you know. So are we to say that God failed? Uh, that of the six hundred thousand or so uh, that that left. Egypt uh, and didn't make it to the promised land, did God fail? And I'd say, no, God didn't. Um, every time uh, a, a Christian sins, and even though there is grace available, um, did God fail? No, no, I don't think the grace of God fails us. I do think it's possible to fail the grace of God. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I, I had a I actually I did a uh, case against limited atonement stream on my own, uh, you know, here on Cerebral Faith Live was a PowerPoint presentation or a Canva presentation. But like I said, like I said last Saturday, uh, 
PowerPoint has the same thing going that Coke that Coke has here in the American South. Uh, everything is Coke. Pepsi is Coke. Coke is Coke. Doc, Dr. Pepper is Coke. If it's a soda, it's Coke. Same goes for slides. If it's Google Slides, Canva, or actually PowerPoint, it's all PowerPoint. Right. Uh, but And I made the point that I think um, one can say that even, even if uh, you know this sort of resistible grace makes God a failure, you can just put that under the umbrella of God condescending himself uh, just the way in the same way that he condescends in, in other ways. I mean, God yeah, was I, not I, I, God was not above becoming a drooling, babbling baby uh, as part of his plan for our for our salvation. Yeah, I think I think that. Um, uh... Oh, yeah. And I also want to I also said um, that God can, you know, he, he can allow himself to be a failure if there are morally sufficient reasons to do so. Like, I think uh, you have to actually freely enter a relationship in order for it to be true love. And if God were to, you know, irresistibly draw everyone to salvation, that would be, that would not be genuine love. And also it may be, it may not be feasible for God to actualize a world where every single person freely chooses to respond to the gospel in any feasible world god could create there may be some who would uh resist to the end yeah i'm not sure i, I i'm still not sure i i want to accept the label of failure because that is exactly the accusation that universalists make yeah well that i don't either i'm just yeah. saying that yeah. as, a, as a concession i'm like even right. if even if it's not a problem. Yeah, because um, universalists generally bring up this objection to any of us who believe that that there are people who will be eternally lost. They will say, "Well, then you have you have uh, portrayed God as a failure. That His great project ends badly for a significant portion of humanity." But anyway, we, that that's the best I think I can do with that one. Let's move to the next one. Yeah. David, uh, David Paulman's next objection is, quote, on the issue of perseverance, there are numerous problems with the idea that one can but won't lose their salvation. First, it is contradicted by examples of people who fall away. Judas was given to Jesus by the Father, John seventeen twelve, and all who the Father gives to Jesus comes to Jesus, John six thirty seven. yet Judas was still lost, John seventeen twelve. And again, Paul tells us that Hymenaeus and Alexander made a shipwreck of their faith, so it is evident that apostasy is not a mere possibility. We might also point out that the idea is unbiblical. Scripture never says that believers can but won't lose their salvation, end quote. Yeah, I think he's got me confused with uh, Tom Schreiner, uh, perhaps with uh, Bill Craig, uh, because they do argue that... Um, that you know, in other words, that the the warning passages are the means by which they persevere. Um, I don't I don't embrace that. Uh, what I argue is is that not only do we persevere, but we are also preserved. So so I, I uh, yeah. What what I'd have to say to, there to David uh, is that I agree with your opening sentence. Uh, that that um, I think the idea of saying that God uses the warning passages as the means by which uh, people then persevere sufficiently so that they may stay in a state of grace, 
there are so many uh, issues that I have with that because it seems to give the idea that certain egregious sins are sufficient enough that a person, the blood of Jesus Christ no longer saves them. And I find that very problematic. Well, it might just be uh, warnings to not fall into disbelief. Not that would that would be the only sin that would really uh, cut you off from grace. So it's it's yeah. say and and I was listening to Michael Heiser's uh, series on Hebrews, and he was talking about how like the whole letter was written to a persecuted. Uh, Jewish sect who were really tempted to just give up Christianity, return to Judaism, start observing Torah, and and just g go back to that old system. Yeah, the Hebrew uh, and that's and that's where most of the warning passages that I'm aware of are, are found. I mean, Hebrews yeah, those, is just littered really tough, with them. Those are really tough passages. I think that 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 perhaps it would be fruitful. Uh, and and I'll this is all I'll say on it for this at, at this point. It might be fruitful to do, as, as many have argued, to understand those in, in a very corporate way. Let's remember, what is the, what is the metaphor? What is the extended uh, example? What is, what is the, the, the typology that he's using all through the book of Hebrews? It's the children of Israel in the wilderness, how they fail and they don't enter into the promised land. Well, here's the question. Is it that they lost their salvation or is it that they failed to receive the, all of the promises of God that God had intended for them? Um, for all their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God's spirit never left them. The, the, the pillar of fire still directed them uh, by day uh, and they still uh, enjoyed the presence of God, even though, you know, Moses included, died in the wilderness. So the, the point that's being made there is not about to a warning to individuals that they're going to lose their salvation if they don't persevere. It's very much a warning to a collective body about losing everything in terms of the message of the gospel and, the, and, the, and the, uh, uh, the, that they are going to be shipwrecked in terms just like the way that the community was uh, and the purpose that for God having that church, I believe it's the church in Rome, uh, it, that that church is going to be devastated and it's going to be ended. Uh, so I think that understanding this in a very corporate way, we are Americans. We want to understand very individualistically. Uh, and if we understand uh, the, the type and the archetype, he's talking um, to a community and using a community as an illustration. Now, it is a community made up of individuals, and individuals uh, play a role. So it's not just corporate, and it's not just collective. But I think it's very much we need to keep the collective aspects of that in mind as we look at those. Well, let's look at your last question. What is it? Okay, well, um, yeah, I guess number 11 really becomes, uh, it really doesn't matter at this point. Uh, the last one is, he says, finally, it's very difficult to see how warnings against losing salvation can maintain their force if we were to believe Keithley's proposal. Uh, just how am I supposed to be worried about holding to uh, holding fast to the faith if I'm convinced that God actualized a world where that won't happen to me or indeed to anyone else? Yeah, I think, again, I think he's confused. Um, Bill Craig does argue that in, in an article. Um, and Tom Schreiner and Ardell Kennedy 
argue that in their book. And in fact, if he, if he, I would invite him to go back uh, and take a look at my chapter on eternal uh, life, and he'll see that I critique that very position that he's disagreeing with. Okay. Um, could you, would you mind just taking one uh, one more audience question? Oh my goodness! I guess I guess I can. <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, James uh, James Standifer. Yeah. Uh, says, I would like to know what KK, Kenneth Keithley, thinks are the weakest points of Molinism, uh, also his understanding of Hebrews 6. Well, I, I, I just gave my understanding of Hebrews 6, that I do, I do understand that to be talking uh, to a community, warning them about what will happen uh, if they as a community uh, fail. Uh, and and the, that if you look at it in that context, look where he's coming out of chapter five, right on in the the analogies and the language there uh, in Hebrews chapter six is talking about um, Israel in the wilderness. And it's also uh, talking about um, Isaiah's portray, portrayal of, of of Israel as a community. Um, let's remember the idea of talking to a community as a singular head and 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 the singular head acting on behalf of the community this corporate solidarity is very much a, a biblical concept that we as westerners struggle with james asked a very good question what do i consider to be the weakest uh, at points of molinism um two things that i consider to be something that i i i think about one of course is the grounding objection uh, the grounding objection is a serious objection. If it wasn't, uh, you wouldn't have so many very bright minds uh, 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 working on it. Um, so, so that is uh, something that I think is uh, is is a challenge, and, and so I would acknowledge that. Second, I wonder if at times if we don't fall into the univocal trap uh, that um, we understand that something either is done by God or it's done by us, but you can't have two agents uh, operating simultaneously. Uh, so um, it does, it, it, should we understand divine action univocally, or should we understand it in a more Thomistic analogically, uh, analogical way? And I, I, I agree that that is a conversation and a discussion that needs to be had. And I think sometimes Molinus fall into the univocal trap, and we have to be careful there. Great question. Okay, well, thank you, Kenneth Keithley, for coming on Cerebral Faith Live, a.k.a. the Cerebral Faith Podcast, uh, because they are fused now. Um, and I want to thank everybody here for uh, attending live, and uh, I want to thank uh, everyone for watching who is watching on playback. And before we go, I want to give a shout out to my patrons, David Parrish, Brandon Whitaker, Jordan Hampton, Nathan Hamilton, Christopher Rogers, Andrew Melnick, Slam RN, Zach Miller, Steel Cat, Red Blade Flame, and Ron Minton. And if you would like to become a patron, go to www.patreon.com slash cerebral faith. Peace out, God bless, and keep using the brains that God gave you. Thank you.